Big update in the markets today with tech stocks taking charge. However, we're still down for the year on the Dow. And our guest this for, for buy, hold, sell today is actually saying maybe the short term is in a corrective phase. But we'll see what's happening. Welcome, everyone, to Buy, Hold, Sell. I am your trader, Todd Schoenberger, and I am joined by my friend and co-host, Tobin Smith, out in sunny and hopefully it's getting warmer Scottsdale, Arizona. 72 but degrees. Look at this. Gotta, no more sweaters, no more vests. I got so to say, Toby, our audience that's out there in Arizona loves it when we give the daily forecast. So this, yeah. they said this is the only place to get it. So that's <laughs> awesome. But with yeah, us right. today is Gina Martin-Adams. She is with Bloomberg Intelligence. And Gina, you've been, welcome back to Buy, Hold, Sell. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're just so excited to have you because I got to ask you what your thoughts are short term. You said corrective uh, phase right now. The question for investors is how long does it last? Yeah. Or should they and, buy the dip? Yeah. I think those are very valid questions. And the reason I say corrective phase is because we ended 2023 in a manic phase on our primary sentiment indicator, which is our market pulse. And the market pulse is a pretty good guide for us on up to tactical turns in the equity market. We have not yet gotten even back below neutral on that on that indicator. So we've got a little ways to go. And there's no time horizon on how long it takes to go through consolidating such extraordinary gains that we had, like we did in the fourth quarter of, of 2023. But that is our view. We're consolidating those gains. The long-term uptrend is still well intact. As a matter of fact, we established that uptrend with the mini corrective process that we had in the third quarter of last year. So we've had a big, big low in October of 2022. We went back and tested the uptrend line with October 2023's low, and we're still in that uptrend. So our view is we're still in an uptrend trend. You don't work against the trend. Uh, that's just a basic of technical analysis. Uh, and so we're looking for opportunities to get more constructive on the S&P in this uh, mini corrective process. Hey, Gina, how, um, can you explain what goes into your sentiment index? Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. So what we do is we actually take and uh, we take indicators from the market itself. So we look at things like the performance of defensive versus cyclical stocks, and we look for how much that performance hmm. has deviated from long-term trends. We do the same with high leverage versus low leverage stocks, uh, high vol versus low vol. We look at breadth on the index. We look at general volatility trends. So we look at a composite of some indicators from the market itself. We're not taking anybody's word for it. We're just saying, what is the market telling us yeah. about the market? And it proves to be a pretty good indicator of these short-term wiggles in equities, which are tend to be driven by sentiment. You know, there was no massive fundamental change that happened as of December 31st, but we know that stocks got very overbought in December. Globally, we were reaching really extreme overbought levels for developed markets and slightly less extreme overbought levels for emerging markets. But in particular in the US, RSIs touched peaks by mid-December and really started to decelerate by the end of December. That combined with something like a signal of, of somewhat moderate mania from our indicator mm -hmm. would suggest they were due for a bit of a correction. Now, it's not so incredibly irrational, exuberant, you know, such as uh, 2021's gains that we start to get really concerned. All the other indicators that we follow are generally supportive of continuation of risk taking in the near term, but sentiment did become a headwind at the end of 2023. And we want to respect that. Yeah, that makes sense. Does it make sense to since the Magnificent Seven is, I, I just looked today, 
on fact set. Sorry, not Bloomberg. Fact set. Oh no, uh, no, uh, those are that's a dirty word in this in, I, in this room. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I, I bit my tongue and now I'm bleeding. Uh, but the <laughs> um, but they were showing that 48 percent of the earning the EPS for 2024 is coming out of basically eight stocks. So yeah, this wouldn't. I'm just curious. Would the sentiment just for those eight stocks have more weight than the overall market? Well, it it is a signal for the S and P five hundred. I we don't do sentiment on those stocks alone. I think that what's happened in the Magnificent Seven is really easily explained by what's going on with earnings trends. I mean, that's yeah. just where the strength in earnings is. This is a group that posted more than thirty percent earnings growth last year, while the rest of the index posted negative six. Right. So you had a very strong. I saw that earnings. on Bloomberg, by the way. Gina, I saw oh, that. Oh, thank you. Okay, good. I'm glad you're getting something of use. <laughs> Nonetheless, um, that is, uh, I think that that entire largely explains what's happening in the market. There's very little confidence in the rest of the the, in, the index that there can be an earnings recovery coming. So the, the pressure is then on that 493. Prove it and you'll get a benefit if you do start to see some degree of earnings recovery emerge, which by the way, the consensus of analysts thinks that's happening with the first quarter reporting season. So we'll find out by April if we are actually getting some momentum improvement in the fundamentals of those companies. You could see rotation inside the index occur. But for now, yeah, what happens with the seven is very, very meaningful because that's where all the earnings optimism is. That's where all the earnings growth is. Not all but most. And well, so I, they are pretty critical to driving performance trends. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm now coming up with a new acronym because it's it's now the MAGIC-12 because uh, I include oh. t- Taiwan Semiconductor came out today, yeah. 24% year over year, supposed to be, you know, 4%. That's what, even before they get their new plants up, you know, certainly AMD is not in that category as well, but AMD, you know, I, I go back to like being an old money manager or just being old. And the um, uh, it's the beginning of the year, the people who were the momentum buyers sold it, you know, took profits first, second, third part of the uh, days of the year, that was just normal behavior. The momentum uh, algorithms came down a little bit, blah, blah, blah. But these, these companies that are 100% tied derivative to AI adoption, let's call it the, you know, the, the sticks, the bricks, the mortar, the chips, et cetera, took, took about a half a breath. And then yeah. as earnings started, have, have taken yeah. off our, our, our little portfolio here that we managed for clients, et cetera. We're up 28% this year uh, wow. simply because we're overweighted in this stuff and we're not buying, um, you know, United Healthcare for crying out loud or Humana. Right. No, and I think that's a really good point because also what happens with TSMC is a signal for the entirety of the oh. semiconductor space. It's not, this is not a one stock phenomenon that happens to be an industry that is incredibly highly correlated with one another. We actually did some work on this for our chart book this week. Cool. And what you find is when TSMC beats revenue expectations and guides, it very consistently results in very positive results for the rest of the semiconductor industry globally, especially here in the US. And those companies are getting ready to report next week. So you could easily see a continuation of this tech theme just based on that news from TSMC. So that is great to hear. Thank you, Jan. You made my you made my All right. day. Good. There you go. I'm ending my day on a positive note. Your, your work here is done. Now, <laughs> so when you guys are talking, because you're the chief equity strategist, so when you're coming up with your forecast for the year, you clearly are looking at other factors. And one of those is the election. How much of 
how much of the of history of election year history is baked into your forecast for the year? Yeah, so actually we don't use the election at all. What I do is real time modeling. That's why I, I don't love do her, a lot by of, the way. Okay. I, I don't this do election, a lot of forecasting. Election, Thank who you. Cares? <laughs> I just I do a lot of real time modeling, real time assessments. What is the real time movement? What does that mean for the future of science? I don't do any forecasts. And as a matter of fact, it's just something we don't do at all in, in Bloomberg yeah. Intelligence. We do look at, you know, what is the most likely outcome for earnings? What is what does the structure of the market suggest for your most likely returns? We look at a sector model that gives us a relative ranking of sectors based upon indicators that really matter for driving sector performance. So we do model everything and we provide, a, I, I would like to say, a very rich um, amount of intelligence around the markets. But I just don't I don't do a forecast. So I can't give you kind of where, you know, what the election means for stocks beyond some, you know, macro fundamentals that I think are important. You know, the the I, I also don't buy a whole lot into technicals um, around election years. I know that the fourth year, the election year is not supposed to be a great year for stocks, but I find that depending on your, whether you started your time period analysis of elections in 1950 right. versus 1920 versus 1880, you could get really different results. So I tend to push those um, into the onto the back burner. I think there are a lot of interesting potential game changers that could come out as we go through the election season. And we'll certainly be watching things like potential tax reform. What's going to happen with inflation? How's the relationship with China changing? You know, there are a lot of things to certainly consider and factor into your analysis as we get closer to the election. But frankly, the fundamental shifts won't happen until after the election. We just need to be prepared for those as we go through the season, understanding what the candidates' platforms really contain, what kind of differences are in those platforms from a broad economic and corporate fundamental perspective, I think is really the most important way to approach an election season. And, and can you give us some sectors either in this segment or next segment that you're most excited about? Well, yeah, so uh, we could definitely talk sectors. Are we ready to talk about it now? Well, let's go to the break, actually, and tease it there. Okay. Because the boss, okay? I'm simply the whipping boy. Toby, Toby loves to talk about sectors, and I was going to actually tease it going into the break. but Well, then tease that's... it, damn it. <laughs> so let's do this. So we're going to hold that for the, for the next block, because with us today okay. is Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Investment Strategist, Chief Equity Strategist, I'm sorry, yeah. Gina Martin-Adams, and she's joining us on Buy Hold Sell. But please stick with us after the break. We'll be right back. Buy, hold, sell, brought to you by Crosscheck Management. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. 
Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with breslow the business of sports betting podcast welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit fuel your purpose and connect us all We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. Hey, this is Jeff Hurst, Editor-in-Chief of the Stock Traders Almanac. you got to listen to Todd and Toby on Buy, Hold, Sell. Welcome back to Buy, Hold, Sell. Well, with us today, we have Gina Martin-Adam. She is the Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. She's coming to us from New York City from the mothership, 731 Lexington. <laughs> I, I mean, Gina, you got the, the backdrop. It looks great. It yeah. looks wonderful. So Thank you. Dinner. A little bit different than our usual at-home casual conversation. I'm here in the office in a ca- in a conference room. So look yeah, I, I missed the closet you used to do the TV from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. So, Gina, when we left off in the last block, we were we were teasing the idea of sectors and the favorite sectors that, or at least the fa- sectors that you're focused on for 2024. What are your favorite ones right now? Now, I know you're going to say tech, which is fine, but what other ones are, do you have an eye yeah. on? No, I think that's a very keen point because our methodology for sector selection, our sector scorecard really depends partly on technicals, uh, price momentum, but also on earnings trends, revisions, and valuations. Tech is still toward the top of the scorecard. It's really, hot, really tough to fade that very strong price momentum as well as very strong earnings trend in tech, as well as the communications stocks, which are kind of tech's yeah. ugly little sister that nobody talks about, but have been ripping like crazy as well. Communications had a fantastic yeah. 2023. Yeah. So Go those ask two Mike Wilson still... how, how, how tech works out uh, in 2023. Yeah. <laughs> those two are still up there. They're still at the top of the scorecard um, for those reasons. Not great yeah. valuations for tech, but actually really good discounted valuations still available in the communications space. Now, Set those two aside, and we actually do have a couple of surprise entrants to the top of the scorecard as of the fourth quarter. Financials and energy joined the top of the scorecard with tech and communications, which is an interesting combination 
Uh, it says a lot about the sort of um, potential for a broadening recovery this year into some of the laggard sectors. It also suggests that the inflation tailwinds, maybe the disinflationary tailwind may be ending and we're in for a little bit of a different kind of environment where energy stocks can participate again. Financials is such an off the wall call considering the consensus yeah. toward that space is so very, very negative. But I think what's happening there is uh, an earnings rotation, very, very discounted relative value and earnings rotation happening in financials because the worst is likely passed. And financials does tend to do very well in the early stages of an economic recovery, particularly after the yield curve makes its most its deepest um, passes its deepest point of inversion. And that does appear to have happened. So financials has popped back up into the top of the scorecard as well. So it's an interesting combination of these sort of really strong, long trend growth stalwarts that have been in a path of of improvement for the last two years with some potential up and comers there in in energy and financials. You know, Javier Blas is uh, not that positive on the uh, pricing of uh, uh, oil and natural gas. So if pricing of oil and natural gas doesn't go up, how do how does energy outperform yeah. or or how do you define energy? Yeah, so it's a good point. We do, when I look at energy, I'm just looking at the S&P 500 energy sector. So there's no fancy magic behind yeah. it. Well, that's- what happens is because the consensus of analysts is anticipating energy going from really big earnings declines to just moderate growth over the course of 2024, that hook higher pushes energy up in our scorecards. So we are somewhat dependent upon, at the very least, the declines that we experience in oil prices have largely ended. Energy will not work if oil prices continue falling. It's just not, it's it's almost impossible. The sector is very closely tied to the tied to oil price, but you've got some reasonable discounts that emerged as a result of the corrective process that the sector went through over the last year. And you've got that earnings trend improvement expected by the consensus. And that's enough to get it toward the top of our scorecard where we're not seeing necessarily that amount of momentum shift in a lot of other segments. Todd, you know, you're going to have to tell the viewers that when Gina's on, they have to view because seeing her hand gestures is about 50%. Yeah, it's 50% of the whole communication for crying out loud. I am very handsy. Sorry, very handsy. No, I love it. I mean, it's going up, it's going down. I don't know. I mean, just in case you turn the volume off, you still get the story. Right, exactly. You're you're emphasizing your point, and that that's wonderful. So yeah. let's let's so let's switch off of the oil and uh, the energy side and talk about the financials. Let's break that yeah. down. So when you say financials, are you speaking of banks? Re and then if so, bulge bracket banks or regional banks yeah. or. What are we looking at? Okay, so this is interesting because financials, we discovered as we were aggregating our scorecards around the world, financials is toward the top of the large cap scorecards, still, you know, second fiddle to tech and communications, really tough to compete with those, but also at the top of the small cap scorecard, toward the top of our European scorecard, toward the top of our emerging market small cap scorecard, financials around the world is showing up in our scorecards toward the top. And I think the reason for that is central banks are have stopped yeah. the hiking process and they're going to likely start to ease. And that is embedded in a forecast for earnings improvement for financials largely across the world at a time when for the most part, financial screen as relatively discounted by comparison to the rest of the sectors. So that's what we're finding out for financials across the board. Now, in large caps specifically, I think it's very interesting because the momentum in financials so far 
is not coming from banks. No, It's mostly about the fintech companies, which are obviously benefiting from much more accelerated pace of productivity and improving technologies and really adopting a whole new universe of kind of financial technology. It's also in insurance, which of course is benefiting from the market gains and the financial market improvements of the last year. So it's quite different than I think how people generally think about financials. They think, oh, banks first, and everybody's still very scared about commercial real estate, uh, what's going to happen with loan quality. A lot of people are really anchored on that as the primary reason to stay away from financials. But frankly, there are some reasonably positive trends emerging in financials. And financials tend to do quite a bit better just following market gains. So once you see the market recover, as we did in 2023, you tend to see activity improve. You tend to see M&A increase. You tend to see spinoffs. You tend to see investment banking activity improve with IPOs even, which we just haven't had for years now. So I, you know, the, the momentum improvement could start to just get sparked by the fact that we had a pretty decent 2023. And I think that's something to watch for going into 2024. But Across the world, it really is about those central banks and the fact that we're moving from super hawkish policy to at least neutral policy, maybe even dovish policy. But that move to neutral really takes the lid off of financials that really suppressed activity in that space and, for a long time. And do you time. include a Visa, MasterCard in there? Um, yeah, like those, those are included in that fintech um, segment. Uh, there's also consumer finance. So as consumers yeah. are taking more money out on credit cards, those are the consumer finance companies benefit. So Amex is in there, Capital One's in there, the big consumer company, consumer card companies would be included in financials as well. Well, a- Ally just blows me away. They, uh, I, I, the, I, the last time I looked at it about a week and a half ago, their average interest rate, Todd, on an Ally credit card was between 28 and 34% annual. Wow. And wow. Uh, <laughs> And, and and the people who are using those cards are lower credit, so there's actually higher you know uh, volume and, and balances on it. Now that is a license to print money if your cost of of funds yeah. is uh, you know preferred bonds that are paying four and a half percent. Even I can't mess up a thirty percent a thirty times percent uh, spread. It's pretty, um, pretty stunning. I, yeah. I know you're the equity strategist, and uh, but you you did touch on the the FOMC. Bloomberg yes. Intelligence, how are you, how is everyone talking internally? Because there was, uh, maybe even just a week and a half ago, everybody was thinking we were going to have rate cuts in March. That's got to be out of the question. There's no way that can happen. Um, I know yeah, we don't have Mike, well, but I know you, you probably talked to Mike McKee. What's, what are the thoughts yeah. for, for rate cuts this well, year? What does Mike know? <laughs> well, so here's the deal. We got all kinds of people, all kinds of cook and cooks in this rate cut kitchen. Yeah. Okay. I think you've got... Anna Wong and Bloomberg Economics, who pretty staunchly has been out in front saying was fantastic in forecasting the degree of Fed increases last year, now thinks they're going to start cutting in March and is pretty aggressive on her rate forecast. You've got Ira Jersey, who seems to kind of line up. Ira Jersey is our rate strategist, kind of line up with Anna, maybe a little bit less convinced it's going to happen in March, might happen as early as June, but will happen at some point this year. I think the really important thing to consider for equities 
frankly, whether it happens in March or June, whether we get 25 points or 150 basis points of easing, the important thing is what are the conditions in which that easing occurs? Right. Because if you're getting 150 basis points of easing because economic growth is falling through the floor, that is not yeah. a good condition for equities. And if you're only getting 25 basis points of easing because economic growth is relatively stable and inflation is still decelerating, that's a fantastic point for equities. So I think it's better to kind of go along with what is the Fed saying? What are they likely to do? And importantly, what does that mean about the economic climate? What kind of climate are we in? Because right now, the equity market is much more sensitive to inflation conditions than it is to growth. The equity market is expecting decelerating inflation and decelerating growth. Yeah. So if do you, you um, any upside you surprise on growth, it's going to be greeted very kindly by the equity market. But yeah. any upside surprise on inflation could be very difficult and prevent some of those Fed easings. Um, and if the Fed is having to hold rates tight in an environment where inflation is a little bit stronger than expected, but growth is still depleting, that's not a great spot. Um, Gina, for stocks. isn't that so the, isn't that the recipe for owning big tech who doesn't borrow money? who has yeah. $600 no, billion dollars great cash point. on their balance sheet. Yeah, it's a great point because if you've got not a lot of economic growth, but great corporate earnings growth in certain sectors, that was the story of 2023. We really Absolutely. didn't have great economic growth last year, but we had very strong earnings growth in certain segments emerge and that's what powered stocks. So again, this is like, you know, for me, the bigger point is the Fed is no longer tightening. And so therefore, we're in a different landscape than we were for the last year and a half. Fed's no longer tightening. At least we've got neutral. We can assess conditions of growth and inflation a little bit better without the noise of valuation movements because of what the Fed's doing. But absolutely, what really matters for stocks is earnings. And you can't get me, a, you don't want to get me on my soapbox to talk about the difference between why we don't listen to economic forecasts and we really listen to earnings forecasts. But I, I uh, see you standing on your soapbox right now, Gina. People at home, Gina is standing on the soapbox. <laughs> well, Let me on, just add a quick one. That, that the uh, concept of uh, the Fed's futures uh, rates, where they're looking yeah. at five rate cuts. Yeah. I would like to get whatever dope those guys are smoking. Because uh, <laughs> there is, unless they think, you know, that Taiwan's being invaded by China or, you know, some other... Out, you know, outside the the box issue. By definition, the underlying strength of the American economy is is it does not allow you to have a negative, you know, recession, which would then bring these rate cuts. It, the soft landing is working right now, and I think a lot of people just, you know, are are like dead set, but no, God damn it, we're going to, you know, we're going to have a recession because I say so. I think uh, most economists are very anchored on employment conditions as the big growth component that the Fed watches and then inflation conditions. And most likely because of what has happened over the last couple of years, they're overemphasizing the deceleration and in inflation as the primary driver of the Fed. And the Fed has done a, a lot to try to push the industry back to saying, no, we have a balanced mandate. Yeah, it's about growth and inflation. Mandate. Yeah. And we need to think about growth and inflation. And I do think it's going to be really tough for the Fed to justify cuts 
in the Fed funds rate if the unemployment rate is not rising. It's just that would yeah. say, you know, if, if you still have decelerating inflation, but the unemployment rate is stable, that seems like a pretty good environment. And maybe you've just gotten back to neutral. Here's a fun fact for you, which I think uh, really escapes a lot of a lot of the consensus mind. I was looking at, you know, what neutral is on the Fed funds rate. There's a lot of ways to define it. Everybody goes through their very fancy mathematical methods. But my method is just to look at what did things look like before the great financial crisis? Because remember, the great financial crisis sparked a period of deleveraging in the U.S. economy, which is incredibly anomalous historically. It also created a big downdraft in inflation pressures. We have no inflation to consider really as an aspect of our investment strategy from 2009 to about 2018-ish. And then the Fed could be extremely easy. I think that was an environment of abnormal. So I look back to what is an environment of normal, uh, you know, typical U.S. progress, U.S. growth and inflation dynamic. Well, if we define the period of 1990 to the great financial crisis, that 20 year period as somewhat normal, the median Fed funds rate in that period was 525. Right. We're at 550. Why isn't 550 considered neutral or normal today? Yeah. Well, I'd say that the reason is because economists are overly anchored on the period that we just went through. Well, is the period we just went through really representative of economic conditions today is my argument. So no, this is my very open to this idea that five and a half may be pretty close to neutral and we don't need to cut rates tremendously. Unless we go into some very, very big employment correction. And then then they probably do need to accommodate. That's that's a recession. And then that's not good for the stock market. And other than uh, stuff you have to buy, like AI stuff. But I'm totally with you. I, I, you know, I, I don't have a PhD in economics, but I got close. Okay, I just there was too many girls outside the college, and I, I just couldn't <laughs> you know, stay focused. Right, but the idea, the smart economists I've, I've known are ones who do not go back and say, well, you know, the hundred year average. Jesus, really? Even going back to the you know the 70s and 80s to make these the, the I lived through that. I mean, I lived through the bringing interest rates up to 21%. Well, there was a reason why they had to do it. But we're not anywhere near that situation at all, including the fact that we are the largest exporter of oil and natural gas in the world, and LPG and LNG. And so we're energy independent, so that's not an issue. That was a huge part of these inflation uh, deals. Um, and, and then, you know, we actually have computers. Now we have this thing called AI. I don't know if some of these people have heard of it. And the productivity is actually getting higher again. Um, yeah. So you can't raise rates. Inflation doesn't go higher when productivity is improving and 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 job security is at, at, at one of the all-time highs. You just can't happen. Sorry, I'm on soapbox. I'm on my soapbox. <laughs> no, that's okay. I do think reading the economic tea leaves has been so difficult in this post-pandemic period. Oh, yeah. It is creating, you know, it's turning a lot of relationships on their on their head and it's creating a lot of turmoil. It's very exciting to be in the markets right now, but it also is very difficult relative to the time we just came out of. Well, I'll also add that the Fed, you know, uh, and many of the meetings, and I get, I have some Fed insiders that I talk with all the time. One of the things people are not talking about is Mr. Powell, uh, Big J, is very sensitive to the fact that about 61% of American households live paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. And that inflation, getting inflation down so that this hardship does not become more of a hardship is a big deal for him. Uh, mm-hmm. He is very, he is a, a very nice, he's way too nice to be a Fed chairman. When he was in private equity, I, I would go to these lunches and, you know, Jerry would, or Jay would be uh, holding it. I didn't know, think he was the head of, you know, of, of uh, fundraising for these big 
He was the nicest guy in the world. He's a sensitive person. And I guarantee you that, you know, in his $24 million mansion down in, uh, in Virginia, that he uh, understands that if someone's paycheck is only this and rates are here, inflation rates are this. So to me, that's the unspoken truth of the Fed is that they are going to get it down with a two handle. And mm -hmm. if they have to hold rates higher for longer, they will do that because the 60% of households, that really makes a difference. Yeah. Gene, I know we only have a couple minutes left in the show here. I want to ask you there real quick, because you didn't mention real estate as being on the top of your scale there. And if rates yeah. do come down, you would think that would be the one sector that should outperform. Any yep. reason why you're overlooking it? Uh, it just doesn't screen well in our, in our methodology. The price momentum is still quite bad. The valuations are not uh, terribly discounted like some of the other spaces are. The earnings trend is not as big of a, an improvement going forward. So it just doesn't, it just doesn't screen as well, unfortunately. I think if you do see rates come down and you start to see that show up as an earnings improvement for the real estate sector, it will move in the scorecard. And that's something to look out for for the year ahead. We're just not quite there yet. Okay. Do, you, do, you, do you count all the amount of financings that come due in 2024? Well, okay. So we have done a lot of this. We we have done a lot of this work, believe it or not. It is um, a bit nauseating, but nonetheless, we have done a lot of this work. Remember, 2023 was supposed to be a really big year for debt refinancing because right. the biggest year of a debt taken out and debt taken out by U.S. companies in, in history was 2020. Of course, they all went to the market, said, OK, great. Give me that free money because it's at zero percent interest. Yeah. But most of it had a tenure of about three years. So a lot of it actually already expired in 2023. To the degree that there is more, I actually think that the big year to watch is 2025 rather than 2024, because most of that 2024 yeah. due has already been called as well. It is an issue that we want to be conscious of and we want to look for, but at least for the S&P 500, it's just a kind of a non-issue. One thing that I have been watching, though, is the fact that taxes have been increasing. So tax expense has increased to 14% of EBIT. Interest expense is only 8% uh, of EBIT or so. So tax expense has been sneakily increasing uh, really for the last several years as some of the 2017 tax package just rolled off. Yeah, rolls off. And yeah. uh, companies also have to pay, start to pay taxes as they profit. They they earn profits again in the post-pandemic environment. So we are seeing tax expense sneakily increase again. And that was a really big tailwind, not even just from 2017, but going all the way back to 2013, tax expense has been declining materially. So one of my biggest issues to watch point. for the year is really related to the election. What are we going to do about taxation? How are we going to change potential corporate taxes? Will we change them or not? Um, because that could have some interesting implications. But as far as interest expense, I, I think we're probably pretty clear for 2024 for the index at large. Obviously, and you're always going to have- dollar for the mega caps? I mean, for the global mega caps? Yeah, the dollar is interesting because if the Fed does ease and eases faster, then we could have a weaker dollar emerge. But for now, the dollar looks relatively stable. I think the dollar will somewhat depend upon how much central bank easing we get in U.S. versus Europe. What's happening with China? Will China actually ease policy a little bit more? What's Japan going to do? Because all of a sudden, yeah. that central bank is in the game. Um, so you could have a lot of movements in central bank policy that impact the dollar. And that could have impacts on profits. But 
typically I tend to dismiss the risk of the dollar, mostly because from a fundamental perspective, what matters most is really growth. And if you could get growth in all those foreign markets, then the dollar translation effect is not quite as meaningful cool. uh, as we did out, as we want it to be in popular okay. rhetoric. I think that about does it there. This is fantastic. Okay. Tom, what are we going to do next week for crying out loud? I we know. Puzzle here. I know we would be tough to have an encore, that's for sure. So, so Gina, thank you so much for joining us today on Buy, Hold, Sell. I know the audience gets so much out of your thoughts and insights on the markets. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And good luck out there. Thank you. Thank you. And on behalf of Gina Martin-Adams and Tobin Smith, I am Todd Schoenberger. Thank you once again for joining us on Buy, Hold, Sell. We'll catch you next time. Tomorrow we have Barbara Duran is going to be our feature guest. And we'll see you then. Take care. Buy, hold, sell, brought to you by Crosscheck Management. On any given day in Washington, policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. On 80 Proof Politics, a guest and I will visit a D.C. watering hole and distill the art of advocacy by pulling back the curtain a bit and taking a look at how they play their part in the sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair grab a drink and join us. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall cold one?